0: Just like there's two kinds of cyclists, those who have come off their bicycle and those who are yet to come off their bicycle, there are two kinds of people, I think. Those who have had their moment of crippling dread when they come to the realization of the full extent of the current and future effects of global warming and a fossil fuel economy, and those who are yet to. I'm in the latter category in the first instance and the former category in the second. And when I had my moment of climate dread, which I've written about, I've been quite publicly speaking about for a while there, and how it sent me into a period of pretty acute mental illness, I didn't believe that there was anything that I could ever do that would ever make it any better, and I would be in agony and pain and terror for the rest of my days. But there was something I can do. I did it. And it is better, vastly better. Because even with the overwhelming blanket of fear and destabilization of Everything that I have known and our history has known, as far as ecosystems and weather patterns and society, even with the destabilization of that, that we are already very clearly seeing, there is hope and there is possibility. The antidote to climate anxiety is climate action. And my podcast guest this week has written a remarkable book all about action, possibility, and ultimately, freedom from the paralysis that climate anxiety can have on your life. Clara Rourke is my podcast guest this week. Her latest book is called Together We Can. It's a great read and our conversation on this show is a great lesson. But first, we do need to pay the bills. There's a team of people that help me make this show. and To pay them, I read ads. If you'd like a show without ads, I'll tell you about that later on. But right now, you may hear some commercials, you may not. If you do, thank you. If not...
2: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
3: I just love how you can just flip that whole concept. It's so overwhelmed. There's, you know, it's just everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. Isn't that a great opportunity to step in? You know, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this because, yes, it's very scary. We have a very short window of time to do something about this problem. But the beauty in that problem is that there is limitless opportunity to take action wherever you are.
0: That is journalist, activist and author Claire O'Rourke. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is Better Than Yesterday. Hey, welcome. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is a podcast where we just try to make your day today better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them experts in their field. Each chat will leave you with something that makes you go, you know what? Today, better than it was. Just a little idea, just a little way of just adjusting the way that the world appears to you. That's it. I've been having these conversations since 2013. There's hundreds of episodes. I'm here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, Mondays and Wednesdays, and with a guest, and Fridays, I'm here with you. I am Osha Ginsberg. Hi. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm uh, currently midway through an adventure in surgery and uh, home-delivered intravenous antibiotics and uh I'm thankful I still have bicycle gloves, even though I haven't ridden my bicycle in over a year here because they're helping my hands not fall apart from the crutches, which is good. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for being a part of it. And uh, thanks for everybody that reached out through the week. Thank you heaps. Send us your email at gmail.com is my email address. And uh, also thanks to the people that continue to um, let me know about DadPod and how DadPod's – Bringing light to their uh, to their lives. Dad Pod is a, a dadding parenting podcast. I with Charlie Clausen. You can find it where you found this one. And a big thanks as well to people who reached out about Friday's episode. Uh, I was pretty scared to publish that one. Pretty worried. But to be honest, I was quite inspired by the experience at the festival of dangerous ideas and some of the conversations I had backstage with the the people there. And I was kind of emboldened a bit to know that it is important to have conversations that contain nuance, contain acceptance and the acknowledgement that a- acknowledging another's will to change, even if that change doesn't happen in a straight line. These conversations are, are important to have because I think in our community, through the binary nature of uh, social media responses, we have kind of come to be a bit polarized, yeah, a bit, a lot polarized in our thinking. And so, yeah, I thought it was important to put a fairly high stakes uh, kind of chat out on Friday. So basically I I spoke about about a few things, but one of the things I spoke about was being on stage and um, uh, how I kind of averted a climate anxiety-induced terrapu, which is something that happens in my body. I think it's something to acknowledge that the way that I avoided that and part of the way, the, the skills and tools I've learned to avoid those sorts of things, is that this podcast, this exact podcast has been a big part in helping me move past that really paralyzing time in my life. When I first started having conversations about climate on this show, I would be just so scared, like so, so scared. I just didn't, I didn't want to talk about that stuff. I wanted to talk to actors and athletes and entrepreneurs, but I also knew that not having the conversations about things that, I found frightening was making my fear of having those conversations greater, more painful, more scary. I knew enough about it. I knew enough that I was like, I'm just going to have to start doing it. It was hard, fucking hard. Sometimes I would need days to recover, but each time it it got easier. I remember once I spoke to Jamie Simmons. um, He's one of the people that helped move the town of Grantham outside of Toowoomba, basically is town that was like, well, these floodings are going to get worse and they're going to get more deadly. Let's move everybody. And his work is now being adopted around the world as a kind of a baseline method for managed retreat in climate vulnerable areas. Like how do we keep a community together that has lived around each other their whole lives and this particular community and the way they are and how they're situated and who lives next door to who is a big part of how everyone is in the world and the, who they are as a reflection of their space and the people around them. How do we keep that particular part together as we move them? A couple of hundred metres, a couple of Ks. It was a really important conversation and I was, I was dizzy for about three days afterwards. It was so fucking heavy, but I, I pressed on because these are conversations that we need to be having more and more and more and more and more. We have to get used to having these kind of conversations. Just the other day, a United Nations committee found that Australia had violated the human rights of a group of Torres Strait Islanders by failing to adequately protect them from the impacts of climate change. It's just one of a, a growing number of climate cases being brought around the world on the grounds of human rights. The ruling it found in favor of the people from Torres Strait Islands. That ruling really is expected, expected to inspire many, many more. The The rising sea levels, the sea levels are rising. They have already damaged the way that the people on the Torres Strait, those people source their food. The ocean has already uncovered ancestral burial sites scattering human remains of their loved ones, um, even their homes are at risk of being submerged. But their food has been gravely affected. The amount of water that they have available to, to drink has been gravely affected. Now, this is the Torres Strait Islands. This is Australia. These are Australian people. But for many of us, the Torres Strait's is a faraway place which is impossible to picture or understand. Therefore, and I'm not speaking in hyperbole when I say... It's not going to be long before we're going to be having those kind of conversations that happened this week uh, with the people in the Torres Strait Islands. We're going to be having those kind of conversations about cul-de-sacs and caravan parks on the central coast of New South Wales, parts of the Gold Coast, a fair chunk of the eastern bit of Brisbane up in Queensland, just for starters. Now, it is going to be a part of the next 20, 30 years. I'm not saying this to terrify you or freeze you in fear, but that can happen. And if, the D, if it is, I get that. I get that feeling. It happened to me for a long time. But once it did happen, once I, I kind of worked with more than one mental health care professional and, and processed that grief, once the grief has passed, what do you do? How do you keep getting out of bed every day? Play with your kids. Encourage them to do their best and try hard. You do it by taking action and being inspired by those who are already taking action. And that's exactly what my guest today is all about. Claire O'Rourke is a journalist, activist, and an author with experience in writing and campaigning all over the world. Claire has held a number of leadership positions, most recently at Amnesty International Australia and as a national director of community-led renewable energy advocacy organisation, Solar Citizens. Claire also has a a long history of organising and campaigning in social movements and for organisations that deliver positive impact, including uh, overseeing communications for Australia's quite successful Every Australian Counts campaign for the NDIS. That's the National Disability Insurance Scheme in Australia, if you're listening from out of the country. Now, Claire's book, Together We Can, it's marvelous. It's a glorious story of Australians on the front lines of climate action. For us to maintain or yes, even improve our way of life, it is going to take a massive all hands on deck effort. And honestly, it can be overwhelming just thinking, where do I even start? Because we're thinking about food supply, we're thinking about roads, infrastructure, education, keeping communities together, you name it. It's, it's, It's all at once everywhere all around us. And this book really highlights people from all around our country in Australia who are making a difference, a big difference. We're talking food producers, sports people, finances, uh, psychologists, First Nations people, public servants, entrepreneurs, actors, scientists, teachers, farmers, students, retirees. Like she speaks to so many people. When I was really, really sick, I didn't believe that people like Claire existed, let alone the people that she spoke to. But she does, they do, and it's bloody inspiring the books called Together We Can is out now wherever you get your books. You can find her on Instagram. She's at Claire O'Rourke, C-L-A-I-R-E-O-R-O-U-R-K-E. Enjoy this chat with Claire O'Rourke. We're here. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your uh, latitude on uh, timings. Um, my uh, my brain's a bit porridgey at the moment from the the uh, antibiotics that I'm on, but it's extraordinary. I, I did not want to miss a chance to speak to you. Uh, Together We Can is an extraordinary book. And when I was really, really sick, um, I tried – my brain understood that there'd be very smart people working as hard as they can to try and do the best they can – as much as they can, as quick as they can, my brain knew that, but my I couldn't accept it the the I was so ill, and the kind of tingling tendrils of psychosis were getting into my brain so much and distorting my thinking so negatively it wouldn't accept it as a truth and it, it's it was that was a really hard thing to do so to see this uh, you know in in my hands here <laughs> makes me feel you know really really good and i'm I'm bloody grateful for it because it's overwhelming and too much if you suddenly start to think about it. Like, clearly there's a moment in your life where you realised maybe well before um, you had your big moment. Did, when did you realise in your life that you thought about people and the overall impact of you and our society kind of differently to, to others? Were you a kid? Were you a teenager?
3: Oh, that's a really
0: interesting question.
3: So I could give you the boring answer on, oh, well, I've worked on social justice since I, you know, kind of walked away from journalism proper, you know, 15 or so years ago. But actually, the person who taught me about what responsibility means for society is my grandmother. So I, I lived with her for my first year out of school in Epping in Sydney. And she was a fierce activist, but very much driven by her religion. So she was a Catholic, deeply Catholic, went to church every day of her life from her mid-twenties. And she was a big, um, actually a pro-life activist. And so she was vice president of pro-life in New South Wales. She was involved in local progress groups and all this kind of stuff. And we used to have these massive arguments about social issues because we just simply didn't agree on what was right. Mm. And. You know, she she passed away about 17 years ago when my eldest child was about four months old. And from her deathbed, like a couple of days before she died, she said to me, well, I got up on my soapbox and you got up on yours, but at least we both got up. And it's enormously, it's such a good line, but it's, of course, she had a really great line, like a couple of days before she passes, you know, she's flat Oh, I've, I've written
0: all of mine. I don't uh, know about you, but all of mine are already scripted. Uh, It was so good,
3: but also just kind of, she just taught me to be engaged in the society you're in and, you know, you have a responsibility to be part of it. So that's probably driven a lot of the work that I've done, you know, the way I live my life.
0: What did you learn about seeing the humanity in a person that, I mean, the way you mentioned what your grandmother was campaigning for, I, I... I draw a conclusion that you may have had differing views on uh, women's health care. What did you learn about connecting with someone as a human in a loving way? There's your grandma taken into a home, you're living with her, you know, you you care for her, you're related by blood. She's got your mother or father's face on her. You've got her face on you and yet you differ so extraordinarily. What did you learn about connecting and still being able to connect with someone that you love, even though you differ ideologically?
3: I just learn by doing. I think that's what we do as people. We learn by doing. Like, she taught me things like, you know, how to make a really good cake and that you always should wash up as soon as you put the cake in the oven. You know, like, she just taught me very practical things about how to, how to live. And, but she was always doing something for a cause she believed in or for her mm. family or for her community so she was very connected and i respected that and i think i think we need to have really deep respect for people if we're going to exist in this world even when we don't agree with people on particular issues and and i think where we're at you know on climate change which i've written about is that most people actually really care about it so i think mm. i think it's become so politicized that we think we can't connect on this issue with people but yeah. that's just not what the research says and so i think I think it's important to preserve relationships at all costs because that's what we're going to need in moments of crisis that are going to come down the line with climate.
0: But, Claire, like we we pretty much engage with nearly everyone that we disagree with in the safe, anonymous space of being online where it's easy for us to write them off as a human for all eternity and never, ever have any validation of anything they ever say ever again. Block, ban, mute, boom, done
3: used to be easier. That's not the world though, is it? No, it used to to be, um, I used to actually ring up people that would troll me or kind of, you know, put nasty comments back in the day. It was just too hard now. You'd go, you just like look them up and then you ring them up and go, hey, do you want to, do you want to have that conversation rather than, you know, just kind of, yeah, you know, didn't last long because, you know, there's too much of that kind of stuff now. Uh, There's no point engaging with trolls, you know, and trying to fight it out with them because that just feeds the algorithms that are driving us apart. Mm. But um, I do think there's ways you can connect with people who really disagree. And I think part of the reason that climate's been so difficult over the last 10 or 15 years is that, you know, people have been used as kind of collateral damage in the culture wars. You know, these Mm. communities have been set up to fight it out against each other when really, when you put people in a room and you get them to start thinking about what the future should be like, people really agree on fundamental values, fundamental desires for the future, fundamental desire to live in a clean and healthy world, to have good careers and, you know, all of those things that help us exist in society. So it's just I think what we've seen in terms of the way the politics has shifted in Australia is that people are just not buying that kind of stuff anymore, not nearly as much. We're not going to be used as kind of, you know, um, uh, flag flies for, you know, people who want to divide us. I think there is a new new kind of tone in the country. It's really exciting.
0: Certainly the idea of that uh, has certainly sold a lot of newspapers. It's got a lot of clicks and it's got a lot of eyeballs and uh, there's a terrifying book called Merchants of Doubt. Uh, if you if you care to know the <laughs> look at your if, if you're listening and not and not watching, this, Claire's body language just slumped <laughs> like she was a deflated birthday castle. Like, yeah, it's a it's a horrible book to read because this, like, just the, oh, no, no, this is just fine because we're making money off um, selling newspapers and getting people to watch uh, these cable uh, TV shows. and But at the same time, irreversibly, well, not irreversibly, but like just doing extraordinary damage to our ability as a society to see each other as human. When we are in those moments, Claire, when we do feel that rise up of, and there's, wild research around how our brains and our reactions have been altered by the way we use social media, the way we engage, particularly on things like Twitter and Facebook, how we are shortcut to outrage. When we feel those feelings come up, particularly when dealing with maybe someone we love at a birthday, at a Christmas, at, you know, when we're going to visit granddad in the home, what can we do about those feelings when they start to go, ah, it's bullshit, Calls fine. Like, w- what can we do with those feelings and how do we- How do we have that conversation with someone who seems to be so defined by that's not me?
3: It's so interesting. Everyone I know who cares about climate change seems to want to go and find the person that disagrees with the most and take it on. You know, the Extinction Rebellion activist wants to go and talk to the kind of far-right, you know, climate-denying guy, right? It's It's just a real waste of energy. Think about, you know... (laughs) yeah <laughs> it's just not worth it, so you know we we did some research um, back in 2020 called the Climate Compass, and that showed that about half the country is really worried about climate change, and about a quarter of Australians aged sixteen to seventy five, they're so worried about climate change we called them the alarmed. <laughs> so, so they're really worried. But there's a really small percentage, I think it's about 6%, that are in that kind of denialist, dismissive category. And what's so interesting about it is that like, if we go and take on those, those folks, like your Uncle Bob, Apologies to any Bobs who do care about climate out there. But if you've got it's, you know, it's,
0: it's always a Bob. If you've
3: got an Uncle Bob at the Christmas dinner or whatever, like and you're sitting there having an argument, is that a, the really the best use of your time? You might be able to get them yeah. on talking about, you know, the benefits of solar panels, bringing the prices down or whatever, helping with the cost of living. But really it's just Not worth your effort. This is really challenging, though, because if you've got this internal kind of emotional storm happening because they're just making you so annoyed, um, I think some of those basic emotional intelligence skills like breathing, counting to three, changing the subject, talking about the weather, maybe not the the disasters, <laughs> but the weather, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. talking about where are going on holidays. Like, you know, some of those circumstances where it's really difficult is where people are in those family relationships where you're kind of right there and you've got to still connect and maintain the relationship. One of the best parts of a piece of advice I got from um, Mithra Cox, who's a ca- councillor, a Greens counsellor on the local council in Wollongong where I live. She's had thousands of climate change conversations, often out on the hustings, you know, handing out flyers or whatever. And her advice is actually just talk about how you feel about climate change because it's a great leveler. Humans want to help another human who is in distress. And even with people who she could never connect with on the issues, when she talked about how it makes her feel and how climate change keeps her up at night, that's when she gets a moment of breakthrough. So, Thinking about how yeah. we actually connect with our own emotions and talk about them can be a great leveller, yeah. So rather than kind of going for the science and the facts and trying to win the game, <laughs> think about trying to win the heart.
0: It seems the logical thing to do, though, that, uh, you know, if I bring, I guess it's the way my brain works, if I bring a fact uh, that is irrevocably true, another person who I don't know can see that truth and go, well, okay, now what are you going to do about it? But it doesn't seem to be that way. Unfortunately, there's been so much obfuscation and questioning and myth and doubt uh, about a, a fucking fact that it's – you're right. It's, it's, it's hard to understand that. There's a person – there's a few parts of society that are just going to – the edges of the bell curve, it's okay, we'll be fine as long as we can get – a, a big chunk in the middle of the bell curve, along for the ride, we're, were going to be okay. When you worked as a as a journalist, how early on did you start to see the wire, the news start to kind of populate with climate stories? It
3: wasn't actually huge when I was a journalist. I left journalism proper in about two thousand and five, and there were like stories were usually about the big meetings you know, about the global mm. meetings, the Kyoto, you know, and all those yeah. those kinds of global conferences. So it was more a kind of foreign news story rather than a sto- the stories that you right. see now around the technology advances and the cost curves mm. coming down and and the movements of people that are doing incredible work on it. So it really was kind of one of many issues where I think that has shifted quite substantially. What's been kind of interesting in in writing the book has been I've worked out kind of right at the end of the process of writing it that I was actually in a mode called constructive journalism, which is kind of, you know, coming around in Europe, of course, where, you know, they're more progressively thinking about these types of things. But constructive journalism has the journalist playing the role of the facilitator or the connector rather than being the kind of cop on the beat or the judge. So they're kind of the modes of the news, daily news journal or the investigative journal. And it, it's made me reflect a lot on what kind of role um, should the media be playing at this moment in our history? We should be constructing you know, good connections and you know, building great stories and inspiring people with what we can do at this moment when we've got the politics, the economics and the technology all aligning in favour of shifting society.
0: It's, it's the economic part, and it's, it, I've said it on the show before. It, it breaks my heart that it has to be the economic argument, but at this point, Claire, I don't care. I don't give a shit. You know, we're the largest, we're the community in, a, in the world that has the largest uptake of rooftop, rooftop solar panels, and it's not because we love koalas, it's because it's cheap. <laughs> Fine. Put them up there. I don't care why. That's Just right. do it.
3: Yeah, more (laughs) the merrier. It's the the solution that we need. I used to run an organisation called Solar Citizens and it's an awesome organisation that is all about pulling together all the people who have those solar panels on their rooftops and, you know... It is very satisfying just seeing the free energy, yeah. you know, rolling down through your little <laughs> app. We've got six and a half just, kilowatts on our rooftop, and it's just awesome. Oh wow! Yeah,
0: mate. What, I wish I've been sh- I've been shifting and changing my energy companies to try because we have I have a, a driveway full of electric mobility, and I'm <laughs> um, you know, just trying to make sure that we get the best deal on, on and yeah, all that. Yeah. But I cannot wait until, like, it just makes no sense to me. It's like, hang on a second. So. Are you telling me that it's easier to have this jewel of energy to get my car from here to there, uh, mined from, sucked up out of the ground, out of a country that maybe has human rights and politics that I really don't agree with, shoved into an oil tanker, sailed across the world to Singapore, where it's mixed with 18 other countries, and then, you know, brought in another tanker to, you know, a a plant over there in Cornell, where it's shoved into a truck, which is then driven uh, to (laughs) the servo up the road for me, which I then have to go and It's afterwards refined at extraordinary expense. And then I then put that into my car when I could manufacture that jewel myself on my roof for free. Like, why is it easier? (laughs) I just don't get it. (laughs) But
3: the wonderful thing is it is happening. You know, I think this week- Was it just yesterday that South Australia has produced more from wind power, like 150% for a moment in time, um, of its whole state's energy needs? And the average, um, you know, whole grid is about 62% renewables generation. Like it's happening. The states have done amazing work despite all of the political argy bargy over the last decade. And Once, When we look at these stories and we consolidate them, we realise that lots is happening. And it's just, I found doing it, like writing the book, like super motivating because it just made me think, you know what, even like all of those moments when I feel like we are going down the toilet, you know, Mm. if you look the other way and start thinking, you go with intention and say, I'm going to look for a story that makes me feel more hopeful, it works. And I have the best time. 75 people I got to speak to who are doing amazing oh. stuff and it was just so nourishing an experience.
0: And that's that's just the 75 you could do in yeah, the could, window of time you had yeah, to, totally. to write it, yeah. you know, uh, which is amazing. You had a, Obviously, there was a moment when you went from care to concern. Did you yourself get to a space of uh, climate despair and how, I think personally, I think it's a thing that we – if you haven't had the bottom fall out of your world, you maybe haven't considered the fact enough because it is just such a vast thing to conceive of. Our brains wildly can't really picture it.
3: Mm, which so is dear. weird.
0: It's a limitation of our own it's a limitation of our own ability to conceive something, isn't it? Did you have a moment where the the, the floor fell out from under you?
3: Yeah, it's funny. It came after I'd been working on climate for some years. So and it sounds like a cliche to talk about it, but the Black Summer fires. I live down in Ostermere on Dural Country, between the rainforest, like in like quite next door Illawarra Escarpment rainforest, and about a ten minute walk from the beach. Beautiful, enormously mm. privileged place to live. It is just diabolically gorgeous where I live, and also really humid most of the time. And so we. We experienced the fires, you know, we were told by the local fire station to get the house ready and we kind of spent two days cleaning it up and then realised, actually, there is no point. It's a weatherboard house, it's covered. It's surrounded by trees, it's going to burn. We packed up our trailer. My my daughter, who was um, about 13 I think at the time, she was standing in tears in our carport watching us do this and that's when it landed for me. I'm feeling teary thinking about it. It just landed when I was like... Not only was there this kind of incredible cognitive dissonance like you were talking about going, hang on, I live next to damp rainforest near the beach in suburbia. What the hell is going on? So there was that kind of dissonance. But then it was also just like this is dangerous for me and my privileged world, with my privileged life. I'm going to face more of this. We're all going to face more of this. What's at stake is clear and present. And I really freaked the hell out. I was really quite devastated. For months and did some work. I actually did some work on that. I was really, well, lucky to use some of my pandemic time in the first lockdown to go through some processing of those really charged emotions. Because I was just doing a whole kind of, I did a front face at work, like I'm, you know, I'm surrounded by these really gritty, committed climate activists. I was like, I was all in for all that, but privately I was freaking the hell out. And, um, yeah, so I did some I did some work on that and it was really really great. Really great. Great Grief. Good Grief it was called. Yeah.
0: Mm. Did that work look like speaking to someone?
3: Well, strangely, yes. It's meant um so I joined a a program that is volunteer run called Good Grief. It's like a global uh, network, a bit like AA. So it has a 10-step program and you meet every week or fortnight for a couple of hours to just sit in circle, often in person, but this happened to be on Zoom so I could access it with the pandemic. And you just, it's not a counselling group. It's not run by a psychologist. It's run by someone who's done a bit of basic um, familiarity with how the thing works. And Liz Wade, who I write about in the book, led these groups with just beautiful care and kindness and she was very gentle in kind of just opening a space that is called a brave space not a safe space but a brave space where you step in with generosity but also with vulnerability and I met this group of beautiful um, women from different parts of mainly Victoria who were all going through the same kind of freak out and you know, Psychologists for a Safe Climate, which is an Australian organisation, recommends sharing your feelings with other people so you can build that kind of, you know, camaraderie, solidarity, support. But it also, mm. because the program's a little bit structured, you go through the good grief 10 steps and you think quite philosophically about your place in the world, the fact that you will die. You could die tomorrow. You know, it really got me to place my life in context to... Value the time I have the privilege I have, the family, I have the health I have, the environment I'm in. But it also made me think really reflectively about my role and what I was going to do. So I was you know manager a program at work on energy transition, supporting the climate movement to do great work, important work. But I started really thinking about how I wanted to make a contribution and that's where the idea for the book kind of came around. So it was like, well, mm. I can collect stories. I've done that before. Um, I know a lot of people doing amazing things, but I wanted to see more and I wanted to kind of consolidate this kind of more positive vision because mm. I hadn't seen it around much. I'd seen a lot of the other yeah. side, a lot of doom and gloom. And,
0: well, you know, wildly, Claire, like the, the doom and gloom stuff, also gets clicks and also sells newspapers. And that's the that's the thing, which is the tricky kind of balance in telling the story of it's so fucking bad, we have to do something now. <laughs> yeah. Yet we want to scratch that eczema, you know, so we click and click and click and click and then we're fucked. But that kind of gets you in a state of paralysis, and you end up being so overwhelmed you can't do anything which is a wild thing about like when I think what's it you know well you guys didn't live with the war. like think back uh, like 1933 all the way to 1939 1940 um we could do something about the rise of fascism there's something we can do I can me and my friends, we're going to go to a training camp. We're going to get on a boat. We're going to go and sort this out because that is no way to treat another human. And I don't want to live on a planet when that's happening. Great Manhattan project. Boom. Let's go. Like Things with practical things. Mm -mm. But this is so huge. There's no, like, it's so big. You can't start anywhere. You're literally holding back the tide with a dustpan and brush. Like it's so easy to get overwhelmed. you just Mm. paralyzed. So if people do find themselves in that space, what do you think? What what have you learned from your work, from your chatting with people? What have you learned as the first step away from that place of paralysis?
3: I just love how you can just flip that whole concept. It's so overwhelmed.
0: There's, you know, it's just
3: everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere. Isn't that a great opportunity to step in? You know, I don't want to sound Pollyanna about this because, yes, it's very scary. We have a very short window of time to do something about this problem. But the beauty in that problem is that there is limitless opportunity to take action wherever you are. And there's this wonderful work by um, Anaya Elizabeth Johnson, who founded the All You Can Save Project, and she's... I've, I've,
0: known, I've, known, I've known Ayana for a long time. Awesome. Yeah, she's incredible. She's been on this show. Oh, she's great. an amazing human being. All we, all we can save is a fantastic book.
3: Yeah, so she talks about that Venn diagram between you know what you're really good at and what you really love doing and what's required, and that's a great roadmap to begin your own climate journey because you can start really close to home. But I actually think there's another part to it, which is around your networks. And so mm. when we're working in advocacy, we think about our influence because we're always trying to get someone who doesn't want to make a decision to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do. So we're thinking about how do we influence them. But I don't think people think that they're very influential on their own often. People think they're kind of a bit powerless or other people are making the decisions, you know, which is why we expect the government to do it for us or the leaders of big business to do it for us or just somebody else, please. But um, some of the social research I write about in the book says that Actually, the most powerful people are on the fringes of those networks, and behaviour change will spread most quickly when you've got people kind of on the edges of one social network that are also in another social network, and that's the work of Damon Centola I write about. So that's why Twitter wasn't actually spread by Oprah. She got on board just as it was getting really huge, right? But it jumped from the you know uh, west coast of the US over to Boston because there were lots of networks of academics that were spreading it around. So it wasn't spreading like a virus. Behaviour change kind of jumps all over the place based on these networks. And the more people in networks that are doing a particular behaviour, then that changes social norms, it becomes a new standard, et cetera, et cetera. That's how solar panels have, you know, taken over um, a lot of Australian rooftops and that kind of thing. But yeah, the thinking about the influence you might have in your networks is critical to getting accelerated change. So everyone's got a network, might have it at your local church or, you know, your footy club, your music group or at work, critically, that's where we spend a lot of our time for, you know. Mm. So thinking about the influence that you could enact in those different circles to start creating some of the behaviour change that's required, like switching energy use, switching where the banking's happening, like don't just think about you needing to do it in your own life by yourself, but how can you actually get some of those networks to make some of those changes without it needing to be a whole other job because everyone's pretty busy. So, yeah, I think there's a huge <laughs> opportunity to do lots yeah. on climate change that's very connected to your own own life. You don't have to go and reinvent yourself or, or the, entire, you know, the entire way you run your life.
0: The, uh, the, the, the dark cynic in me uh still looks at a you know we we hear a thing carbon footprint and then my carbon footprint's pretty big oh i've got this i got this roll of film here it's this ancient archaic stuff made of gelatin not the other stuff. vegans but i put it in, <laughs> I, I put it in a camera to take photos of my kids oh it's come from another country oh the carbon footprint on that is huge bad you for buying film bad carbon footprint is two words that were come up with for a pr company Mm. employed by BP, yeah, to have the effect that, oh, you, the end user, are the reason that there's a problem, not us, the gajillion dollar, you know, fossil fuel yeah. extractors. whose interest does so that serve,
3: you know, like, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, I, I guess where I'm going with that mm. is, you know, there is the judgment we have as neighbors when we see one of our neighbors on bin night put the wrong thing in the recycling bin oh bad they're doing the bad thing but then hang on what it's okay to open up 50,000 square kilometers for gas exploration what the fuck like at what point Do we, our own, as you mentioned, what can we do today in our own service? But where's the advocacy? Where's the pressure for the upstream solutions? And why, how can we make those happen as fast as possible, Claire?
3: Oh, there's so so many campaigns that are happening right now to stop the extractive industries from getting bigger because the International Energy Agency, that wildly anarchic (laughs) organisation, actually, like these anarchists at the IEA, they said that last year, that there can be no more coal, oil or gas projects opened up. So that is clear. So when you've got a really conservative organisation saying that, we know what's at stake. Um, Look, there's really big projects that are coming down the line now, particularly around gas, and I would encourage people to go and have a look at those campaigns, particularly around um, the Scarborough Basin and the Barossa. So they're They're worth looking at. You can have a look at the organisations that I've listed uh, in um, climateactionstartshere.com, just a page on my website where you can get some ideas of where to start because there are so many campaigns. Um, I think what we need now is people thinking they can do more than recycling to help with this problem. So the same research that that we did that showed lots of people really care about climate change also showed that the biggest amount of activity is around recycling and recycling is a really great thing to do because we need to do it, but it is about between 2 and 4% of Australia's contribution to um, carbon emissions, whereas everything else, my friends, is energy. The mining and burning of fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas, is the problem, and by joining efforts with other people that are supporting First Nations communities that don't want extractive industries on their land, by ensuring that we can halt or delay those projects... That is what is required so we can create enough time for the solutions to come in at the price that can make it work in a clean way. Like that's just what we need to do. So there's just so many options. I could tell you about, you know, many campaigns that are happening everywhere, but it's probably best to just go and have a look at um, climateactionstartshere.com and you'll see all of those groups that are doing that work.
0: So as much as it's important, it's important to make sure that I, I don't get the plastic containers in the paper bin, it is to make sure that my windows aren't drafty so that my either heating or air conditioning uh, is as efficient as it possibly can be.
3: Yeah, well, think about different systems. So there's your system of yourself, there's your system of your household, there's a system of your network or community, and there's big global economic systems. And when we work as advocates, we're thinking about how do we create the conditions within that system for kind of tipping points to occur and for change to happen really quickly. And they'll be like, you know, the climate movement's been working for years and years and years and years, and then all of a sudden the politics has shifted. It didn't just happen. You know, it actually started happening in the 2019 election, big swings away from the coalition because of climate change. But all of these issues have built up. Community concern has risen. We are facing all of these climate impacts, the repeated flooding this year, you know, the bushfires. All of these things have added up to the community saying, enough, the system is tipping. And that's created all of this political space. So one of the best things you can do is think about how you're influencing a system. How are you creating some of those conditions for change to occur. So, yeah, it's, it's, um, I feel like there's lots of opportunity right now because of the economics, because of the technology shifts, um, and because people care more, where all of that's aligning. Um, but I'm, you know, like you, I, I have cynical moments of plenty. I despair, I freak out pretty often. Yeah, But it doesn't stop me because I'm making sure I'm looking for the light to chase down. I'm looking for the good news.
0: For someone who, you know, I'm going to go uh, f- like three three in a row on the stereotypes, like for someone who grew up uh, adjacent to Mullumbimbi with parents who were <laughs> open quotes farmers uh, and is now leading a, shall we say, you know, medicinal healthcare company, uh that's carbon neutral, like, okay, great. That's a great story, but you were kind of predestined. As you were researching the book and speaking with people, who are the people like like McLeod that you were so surprised, like, wow, you as someone who pro- clearly is a more conservative thinker, you've approached this from a completely different angle. Like what, what are some of the stories there? Because I think that's, I, I don't want to be, you know, go, here's more stories of people just like me. I'm, I'm fascinated. Like, yeah. What are some stories yeah. we can share of people like, wow, that's that's Uncle Bob and Uncle Bob is now on that path.
3: <laughs> well, I wouldn't call him Uncle Bob, but um there was this there's this great guy, Alan Hyde, who I met who is a retired engineer and he's a scouts leader and he's moved for retirement back to the kind of in-laws family farm up in the Blue Mountains out on Mount Irvin, and he's a member of the Bushfire. Um, rural Fire Service, you know, so he's a captain. And the Mount Wilson fire joined a backburn during the Black Summer fires that saw devastation through that entire area. But he's decided to take on a project that will never – he won't see the end of it in his own lifetime. He's basically going to partner with the scouts and, you know, collect seed, partner with his neighbours where they dedicate, you know, portions of their property – and replant the rainforest to create fire barrier and resilience, bring back the fireflies, but also get, you know, the scouts connecting with nature. This is not going to come off in the next 10 years. He's in his 70s, but he is committed to creating this model that anyone can pick up and replicate. He's not trying to build a big um, company or anything. Mm. So, yeah, he's, he's just decided to embark on that journey when, you know, He's got an engineering brain and a scouts leader and lived in suburban suburban Sydney. The other person I met who was just so brilliant was um, uh, Susan Mungle. She is a mum of four, lives in Kingaroy, the peanut capital of Australia, it's where Sir wow. Joe Bielke Peterson hailed from. I
0: grew up in Queensland, mate. Yeah, I don't know you know, King about that.
3: Not far from the Toronto power station. Yeah, well, Suzanne, she um, had her freak out moment, you know, and just went through an incredible roller coaster of climate grief. And that was prompted by Greta Thunberg at the UN saying, you know, I'm holding mm. you responsible. And she just wrote in her journal one day, I'm really sick of this. I don't feel like this anymore. I'm going to do something about it. And so she just started doing lots of stuff locally. Like she started the Eco Mums Facebook group. She's lobbying the South Burnett Regional Council. She's doing conversations with this fabulous organisation called Climate for Change. And when I spoke to her, she just like is in peals of laughter about it because the only hippies she'd ever encountered were in the shops with the crystals, She just didn't know any of them. And so, yeah, so she's just taken, like, she's gone through this kind of turnaround in her worldview and in her life, and it took about 18 Mm. months. Like, it didn't didn't happen over a 10-year period. I think her life, you could see that she's really transformed, and it shows the potential in all of us to do that, you know?
0: just taking a moment away from claire to uh just to remind you to check out dad pod wherever you find your podcasts it's uh, me and charlie clausen uh, this week we're speaking with a, a child speech pathologist she's a extraordinary doctor and um basically explaining you know why the three-year-olds in our lives have 24 letter alphabets why are they, where are the l's and their r's why are they not there yet it's actually pretty cool it's good chat and if you do want to ever get in touch with me, it's super easy. You can find me on Instagram or you can just shoot me an email, send Email at gmail.com. Uh, thank you for the pictures of the squash courts. Uh, <laughs> that was cool. That was really cool. If you'd like to support the show and if the show brings you value, I would really ask you to do just one thing for me. The main thing I'd ask you to do is just share the show, tell someone about it, text this episode to somebody, tell someone about the show, tell, just let them know. All right. That's the best thing and possibly just send a direct link to the podcast on however they listen or show them how to download a podcast app, show them how to download a show. And, you know, pick your favorite and say, yeah, check this one out. And that's the greatest thing you can do for me. If you want to help us out at the team, like in a way that, you know, involves money, thank you. You can do that because in the return, you get ad free episodes and you also get full video episodes, which are available at patreoncom osher. We're back in a moment with Claire O'Rourke, um, but for now, Helps pay Andy and Rachel and Bree And Mike, here's some ads.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass?
0: Part of why I'm kind of I am fascinated with this book, because you do, you do touch on this, is that I have this idea, and I just love your thoughts on this, that one of the reasons that we haven't acted as quickly, uh, as f- like the comparison I have is the Montreal Protocol around CFCs and the hole in the ozone layer in the 80s. That was done and dusted in a couple of years, and it was incredible, because it, it was one singular thing and it was one singular cause and it was pretty simple to find an economically viable solution and a timeline for people that were in countries that weren't able to get there and Bob's your auntie's living lover, done. Um, what is it about, p- part of the reason that I feel that we're in such a pickle, as I mentioned earlier, is that it's, a, it's a limitation of our own brain's processing power to actually conceive of this problem. And so... It's not to say we should let ourselves off the hook, but there's a bit of latitude there, isn't it? What have What have you found out about, about that?
3: One of the biggest barriers to behaviour change on climate is the, the kind of barrier around people thinking it is too hard, and that showed up in our research. So just thinking it's too hard, I feel like I'm already doing a lot, it's too overwhelming, is actually a block. It's a tangible block. But um, what I did learn from, oh, you're probably familiar with Renee Lertzman's work, who's a psychologist and expert in climate anxiety and um, climate distress, she, she teaches us that we need to be sharing how we're feeling about climate change because that unlocks the brain. It unlocks the prefrontal cortex when we're sharing our emotions and acknowledging them. And that part of the brain is what it controls our executive function. It's our ability to be creative. It's our ability to solve problems and find find all these solutions that we need. And I think, I don't know, I think in our modern world we're kind of told that we should only be rational beings. But that's just rubbish. Mm. We're emotional beings. It's probably why I, you know, buy the shoes that I want to buy. It's just stupid emotional decisions that have no kind of grounding in reality sometimes. I bought a really good pair of, like, from an op shop gold, these platform heels the other day, they're just awesome. But, yeah, no rational, particularly when I also have a hip problem. That is a stupid thing to buy, but they are awesome, (laughs) you know. So you're just kind of, you know, we're emotional beings. So it's very, but we've been taught that we need to be, like, good rational producers in the economy, you know, good little robots. And so the encouragement to actually acknowledge our emotional world, I think, is often cast aside. But it's fundamental to who we are as humans. And, when we're sharing that, when we're sharing those moments, that actually allows our brain to be freer. So the, problems, the problem yeah. is very huge. It's huge. It's overwhelming. But I, I do think when we have those moments of, of sharing, and I had loads of moments like that in writing the book and having these conversations where people did talk about how they felt about climate change. And they felt like moments of genuine empathy and care that led to these beautifully generative conversations that we need more of mm. yeah it's just kind of hard to do it sometimes
0: <laughs> we all we all do have a our moment you know i'm on this program i've spoken with uh margaret Klein solomon mm. uh who spoke about hurricane sandy in 2012 uh being this big moment for her ayana uh elizabeth johnson dr anne elizabeth we mm. spoke about before she you know when an island of barbuda where she did a lot of marine research work was just flattened she had a had a moment um my moment was just a, a the paper one day uh, <laughs> that, that, More was it. Uh, yeah it was just a, it was just a moment um uh yet you know in, in the last couple of years we've seen you know a fire. You mentioned, um, the Mount Wilson fire. I remember speaking, I did, you know, did a motorbike ride, a charity ride up in that way. And I was speaking one of the fireys there. So what, you know, tell me, you know, we were talking about it and I goes, oh, that was a tough day. Oh, was that the toughest day? No, the toughest day was the first six weeks is what he said. Um, we all have our moment. There's been, you know, three once in a hundred year floods at the start of 2022. We've just declared a third La Nina, boom, it's on the way. Ah, why do we have to wait for these moments, Claire? (laughs) Why do we have to wait for these moments for greater parts of society who have otherwise thought about this to go, oh, oh, that's not, oh, right, oh, that's behind it, shit. Why do we have to wait for these moments? I
3: think we can learn so much from First Nations people about this Yeah. because I think the culture and practice of sharing story and tradition and lessons of what's come before Allows you to place things in time and make plans. Like I just feel like everything's a shock to us because we don't actually think about our history. You know, we don't mm. we don't really think deeply about the lessons we can learn from from past events. We just go, "Oh my goodness, we're surprised!" Now we respond like reactive creatures. One of the mm. best lessons I got from the book um, process was talking to Nola Turner Jensen, who's she's a Wiradjuri woman, and she's basically rebuilding the language map of Wiradjuri country, which is one of the second biggest language group in Australia and and, um, massive land territory in, in, you know, central New South Wales. And she taught me about totems and about care for country and about kind of building in awareness of your local environment as a daily practice. And if you're more observant, you're more likely to understand earlier the need to make adjustments but we're not observing our world, mm. not in that kind of habitual way, I don't think. We rely on the news or we try and outsource it to someone else to do it for us. But, mm. yeah, it's. I think we can learn a lot from thinking about keenly observing our environment and also thinking about stories from history that allow us to think about how we can be getting ahead of some of these problems. It's kind of... It's kind of a non-specific thing, but it feels like some of those practices are key to how we can mm. actually be more aware rather than this kind of, you know, kind of Pavlov's dog thing, you know, where you kind of, oh, my goodness, yeah. time to react again. Yeah. And also I think yeah. part of it's that we, like, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have it amazing in Australian society. There's got a big problems with inequality, and yes. um, particularly in places, like the people who are going to bear the brunt of climate impacts are, you know, the people who have had the least to do with causing it globally as much as in this country.
0: Oh, mate. You know. Tell me about it. Like Audrey's family's, Audrey's from Fiji. She oh, grew wow. Up yeah. Uh, you know, we spent a, a lot of time there. Uh, a, a big part of why I am better now is I was over there for work and I was I working with my acceptance commitment therapist and uh, remotely, and I would sit every day at the high tide mark and watch the tide come up underneath the stilts of the village where the beach used to be 20 meters away. And now the tide comes up underneath the village where these people have lived for hundreds of years and their ancestors are buried all around. Mm. And it was awful, Mm. fucking awful, but I did it every day. And that Allow, just being with that discomfort has one of the, that's one of the reasons that I'm now you know, I read about things like Thwaites Glacier and go, that is fucking terrible mm. but I can carry on with my day, that sort of thing would destroy me for, for weeks yeah. uh, in the past yeah. um, but you're right about just observing things, you know, there's two uh, it's a terrible joke, but there's two, two kinds of people uh, those who are like, oh fuck where am I going to get a rat test? And there's me who's like, I read the news like six weeks ago and bought 50, can I lend you one? <laughs> <laughs> I
3: have to say, I'm a, I'm you know? a bit more of a be prepared Girl Scout too. You know, like oh, yeah. it's, oh, yes. it's, I'm a bit more that way inclined when I'm on top of things. But yeah, I, I think yeah. Um, I think we don't think enough about how connected we are to our environment all the time, and just the practice yeah. of totems that I've learned about. It was such a gift mm. to learn about that. Yeah, just to kind of you know, you see if you see your totem if you're an Aboriginal person, my understanding of it is you see one of your totems fly by, one of your birds, or see a plant, you think ancestor. Mm. And how do you look after your ancestors? How do you look after your family? And if you're thinking about how integrated you are with your environment in that way, you're going to be more observant and you're going to think more about solving problems before you're at the, oh, my goodness, I've got to go to the shop and fix this thing in the next 10 minutes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's, it's kind of interesting. We speak about, you know, we speak about animals, we've spoken about agriculture. Um, you know, th- there's a reason it's people give more money to the RSPCA than they do to the homeless because an animal's an animal and there's no motion involved. But this is, uh, at this point, it's at this point, it's still a dirt, water, and animal problem in our country, but at fringes, it's a people problem, but it's about to be a massive fucking people problem. And being confronted with the emotions of displacement and displaced people uh, is hard. And it's, you know, what in your work have you found about the inroads around that? You know, there's people I am connected with, who deal with climate grief in Curibus because their nation is literally disappearing, uh, you know, uh, through, you know, Audrey's family network. You know, there's people who you know, are connected to the crew that bought thousands of acres on a mountain in Fiji. They live on an island right now, but they've bought it. So that got somewhere to go. Wow. In 20, 30 years, you know. So they've got, they can tell their community, we're going to stay here as long as we can, but it's cool, we've got somewhere to go. We bought this land, that land's there, it's ours. Yeah, it's we've some, got somewhere to go. It's mind-blowing. Um, yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of people from the Pacific will end up on our shores. You know, you think about South Vietnam. Most of South Vietnam is maybe two meters above the high tide mark. Yeah. All right, that's a shitload of people who are going to have to find somewhere to go. So what's happening
3: now? It's very, very in the quickly, northern rivers.
0: Yeah, yeah. W- without a doubt, it's very quickly going to become a people problem. What have you learned about, um, about displacement, about community, about cohesion, about? Uh, you know, what communities Mm -hmm. are going to need to do to adapt to and welcome strangers in, which, oh, we're Australian, we'll be fine with strangers coming to our shores. Yeah, (laughs)
3: well, one of the beautiful stories in the book is from the town of Cobargo on the south coast of New South Wales on Yon Country. Cobargo was the town that was made famous because, you know, people wouldn't shake the Prime Minister's hand when um, Scott Morrison came in for a visit. Yeah, national headlines. You probably I've remember the whole thing.
0: Goosebumps thinking yeah. about it. The, yep. the, the look in their eyes was just, you're taking the piss. And I think at that moment they felt like all it's of It was a us
3: community that us. was on its knees, you know. And But I interviewed this uh, wonderful woman called Deborah Summer who is skilled in something, it's a practice or a network community called The Art of Hosting, which is basically a really great way to have facilitated group conversations that uses a whole lot of tools and techniques and practices and all of the things that you'd need to to make a cohesive space and so after quite quickly as the fires were calming there was a couple of community consultation you know usual processes held for that community that didn't go amazingly well Um, and so Deborah thought well I've got some skills how about we just kind of set up a a time and a place and see who comes along. Um, and they called it a Cobargo community catch-ups and they had it at the local hall. They put the date and the time out, hundred people turned up and people cried and they laughed, but they had quite um, careful and considered holding of the space so that they could have small group conversations. Um, and they had a few of these, the pandemic then kind of got in the way and they started doing them online and things. But just sparking those conversations helped generate projects. And, you know, half the main street burned down in Cobargo. Beautiful, historic main street, you know, colonial kind of streetscape. But that main street now is being rebuilt and a lot of the businesses are going to be cooperatively owned. They've, had, they've got this new tool library which has got like seriously impressive machinery in it, but it's also become a meeting place for people. There's a really traumatised community. Mm-hmm. Lots of people, people lost their lives down there. Um, people are still looking for places to live down there and rebuilding, mm-hmm. but they've had creative art projects that have sprung up, you know, children's books and, you know, it's, they've got a community garden that's kind of reinvigorated and all of those things might seem quite small, But they're really not. They're really important things that have helped um, rebuild that community. Um, So it's, you know, more connected than it was pre-fire. I was always pretty connected, a small community, about 800 people. But, you know, just by holding time and space where people were allowed to connect on that really emotional human level at at that time has been helpful for that community. And they've raised, like, millions of dollars. You know, they've been able to get all this government funding because the, you know, Cobargo Folk um, association. They have a folk festival down there every year. They decided to raise a whole bunch of money that leveraged gov- government money as well. So, it's a it's a great example of how people mm-hmm. coming together and someone saying, "Well, I've got some skills. What can I do?" And just giving something a go to see if it would work. And it's led to amazing things.
0: I mean, a lot of people have known about this for a long time. Like, uh, there's something that always that uh, the Queensland government, as part of their aid, gave a lot of TAFE syllabus to Kiribati, kind of knowing that eventually those people are going to have to go somewhere. It'd be great if they had skills and a syllabus that we recognize so they can get straight to work and they can have a place. And that shit's been happening since like, that's like 20 years that stuff's been happening. So people have known this a long, 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 long time. What can we start to bring into our lives around the, you know, what can we start to get you know, skills that we can start to work on around, oh, there's people who aren't from here now living here. Like what are some ways that we can, I guess, prep ourselves for, you know, the a- the demographic of our country changing over the next 20, 30 years? It's already
3: changed a lot. Like, you know, we've got our biggest, the last census showed that the biggest diaspora groups from folks living overseas after England and New Zealand, I think is um, China, India and the Philippines. So... You know, our society is already changing a lot and I think we can learn a lot from place-based efforts that are designed to build acceptance and, you know, mutual mutual aid and mutual support that have been springing up a lot through the pandemic. But also before that, mm. there's an awesome organisation called the Sydney Alliance, which um, you might be familiar with, which is a whole – it's an alliance – Um, model of a whole lot of organisations from different kind of orientations and communities, religious and ethnic, that have come together to work on solutions for that community. So, you know, the trade unions and the, you know, Muslim Women's Association and the Jewish organisations and, um, you know, some of the Western Sydney-based organisations particularly, and they've got a project called Voices for Power, which is not only connecting people on their need for cheaper energy, which is a real big thing in, you know, where you've got to run air conditioners a lot more frequently because it's, on average, in summer 10 degrees hotter in Western Sydney than it is in the eastern suburbs.
0: Jesus. And
3: so energy is a lot, lot more expensive. People don't switch it on. Yeah. And, you know, there's those types yeah. of issues, but it's also people do care about climate and they've been building solid relationships mm. and ways of working on common cause and common concern. And, you know, they've just, mm. you know, won a massive policy reform from the New South Wales government called Bill Busters, which is, you know, so low income folks can defer their energy rebate and put that into doing energy efficiency upgrades and appliance upgrades and putting solar panels on. So, you know, that's prioritized for Western Sydney, which is a great, great new move. But they campaigned on that for that's four fantastic. or five years. Common concern.
2: Yeah. yeah.
3: And I think if we look for like areas where we can come together, we'll learn more about the humans in the process. So doing practical things, not kind of ideological debates or, you know, conversation starters are great, but actually doing practical, practical things together. And the Sydney Alliance did brilliant work to support international students that were looking for support that were left, you know, out in the cold during the pandemic. So I think we can learn Mm. a lot from those place-based organizations that are looking to build coalitions, and build common common cause yeah. from different parts of our community because they are actually leading leading the country in that thinking. It's about the network.
0: Claire, you spoke to a lot of people from all over the country doing wild things. Um, you're not a financial advisor, neither am I, but let's just say you had a self-managed super fund. Where are you going all in?
3: I'm not going to make recommendations for any brands, but I would yeah. suggest... <laughs> I would suggest I'm not going to advise <laughs> offer financial advice. I would suggest people go to market forces because that's where you can actually yeah. see a list of like well-researched um information on the best um, super funds that you might want to select and go go and have a look there. The yeah. recommendations are pretty clear. If you want to look at switching your energy mm. use, green electricity guide that Greenpeace produces, awesome yeah. place to start. So you know think about doing those things one at a time. Don't make a list of 20 things because you won't do any of them one at a time. And more importantly, when you're leaving your fossil fuel based providers, tell them why you're going and then tell everybody else in your networks that you've made the switch too, because that will (laughs) help people change their behavior.
0: Dollars of votes, mate. Dollars of votes in between elections. Dollars are votes that's right. every single time you tap your card. You're voting for something, mm-hmm. and um, that's you couldn't be you could not be more active than that. There's a reason why sanctions work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Economic sanctions work. There's a reason why they work. That's right. Because eventually people are like, oh man, the fridge is empty okay <laughs> claire I could I, I, I'm just so grateful that you you, you came on the show and, and so grateful to hear you you speak as, as I mentioned at the start of this this chat you know there was a time in my life when I didn't believe that there was somebody like you in the world there are thousands if not millions of people like you even though I knew it was true at the time my brain couldn't accept it so it's lovely to actually see it and feel it in my body it's bloody nice um the book's called together we can and um if there's any way that i can be of service please don't hesitate okay
3: thanks so much it's been awesome having this conversation it's just been super fun and i would just i could talk for hours it's so so cool yeah, we'll we'll do part two one day yeah one day <laughs> we'll do
0: that and that was clara Rook. isn't she lovely it was so nice to see her smiling face you can find her on Instagram Claire O'Rourke her book is called Together We Can it's out wherever you get your books it's out now that's where it is thanks for being part of the show I'll be back here on Wednesday big thanks to the people that helped me make this show Toe Hider who made all the music have you listened to Toe Hider's new single yet? it's fine it's just one song it is 47 minutes long but it's just one song it's fantastic he's fantastic a big thanks to Bree Steele on research and support for this show, Andy Marr, who edited the whole thing together, and of course, Rachel Barrett, who not only helps me organize my calendar with my, you know, IV antibiotics muzzled brain, but also sends me fabulous YouTube videos of actual music videos made for shitty 80s closing credit action theme songs, videos I had no idea existed, and really, truly made my day. She's the best. Rachel Barrett, you're awesome. Until we speak on Wednesday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello?